This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Is Carla Homolka being harassed? And do you care? Uh, basically, what's happening here, uh, and remember we talked about this before, it was earlier on in the year, I believe, where uh, Carla Homolka and her family uh, in Quebec, and I believe she was volunteering at her kid's school, and I guess some of the other parents weren't aware of that, and then I believe the end result was that she would no longer be allowed to, uh, of course, uh, volunteer at the school. Things sort of subsided for a while. Now, apparently, there's a Facebook group out. Whether it's related to uh, the last case or the last situation or not, I'm not sure. But now there's a Facebook uh, page out. It has about 3,500 followers. It's called Watching Carla Homolka. And basically, they, they post various links, stories about Homolka, who now goes by the name of Leanne Teal. And uh, whenever she refers, resurfaces in the media or whenever she's spotted in public, it seems to make it to this Facebook page. Uh, one of the members posted a picture of Homolka sitting in a doctor's office. Actually included the address of the office as well. Uh, it said that uh, she was there at the time of the posting and it encouraged people to go in there and scare her away. Is that harassment? Certainly sounds like it. But the bigger question is, do you care? Uh, and does she care enough to, of course, uh, take this any further? Let's bring in Ari Goldkind, Toronto defense lawyer. He is with us now. Ari, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Is Carla Homolka being harassed? Yeah, it's a great question, and it will arouse a lot of attention. So to your two questions, one, she is being harassed in my view, and two, I don't think anybody could care less about it. So uh, does it matter if anybody cares less about it? If she cares about it, that's all that it takes to start something? Well, the more interesting question, that's a good question. I would take it here. Are you going to get a prosecutor who, or a police officer who's willing to be the person who now becomes the target of a whole new pattern of harassment as the cop or the prosecutor who actually charges people with bothering Carla Homolka? That yeah. would take a brave soul. And I'm not so sure there's a long lineup at the police station to be that person. Uh, see, that's interesting because I, I'm thinking whether, whether, whether she's debating, you know, am I going to sue? Am I going to take this any farther or not? But you bring up a very valid point. Who's going to take it from that stage and move forward with it? Right, because there are realities in the system. And the question that comes to me, because I always try and devil's advocate my own thoughts, is would, we even be, would, would there be any confusion about this if rather than it was Carla Hamoka? This was somebody liked, somebody, for example, who's an anti-racism or a person who speaks up against anti-Semitism or a person who's in popular politics now. We would be thinking that the people doing this, following them into the doctor's office, should be charged. And the criminal code, Scott, just to get a little dry for 12 seconds, has sections that specifically deal with this. Now, it's at the margin. It's not the clearest of cases, but I've seen people get charged with harassment or intimidation for a lot less. So at the end of the day, is the pros- would the prosecution be interested in this? Would they even want to chase it? And, and, well, and what would it take for them to chase it? it not it, much. Not much. First of all, let's go back a step. It, to me, one of the things about the criminal law is that it shouldn't just be used against people that are unpopular. Hmm. So while this Facebook group has 3,500 followers, there's also a Facebook group that's called Creep Catchers. And it goes after and videotapes all these alleged child molesters. It follows them to their house. Mm -hmm. It videotapes them. And people love this group. 
But at the end of the day, the police don't because vigilantism isn't justified just because you don't like the people. So there's really not much here to worry about charging. You lay the charge, you release the person on bail, you let them have a trial. But one of the beautiful things about our system of law, Scott, different than a lot of other countries, is it's not meant to pick and choose amongst the popular. If the grounds are there to think that somebody is being beset, stalked, intimidated, and don't forget, she has kids. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sort of subtle messages here. And one of the things that comes to my mind, if I'm a cop or a prosecutor, is that this Facebook group of 3,500 or so people is going to get somebody within that group to one day go up to her kids or go up to her and get in her face. And that's a recipe for disaster that the criminal code tries to avoid. Does Carla have to instigate this? Uh, Does she have to bring something forward? Well, see, again, a very, very good question. So the way this would work is that theoretically, a cop would take a look at this and go through the Facebook post and think that they've crossed the line. I don't think there's any line crossed when it says she's volunteering in schools and letting the school know that we don't want her volunteering with our kids. That, that to me, is no problem. Right. But for a cop to look at this, a cop has a reasonable ground. You can just open or Google the criminal code. You can argue about whether there's a conviction that would ensue, but you lay the charge. Now, as I said, I think a lot of cops, given what we know about Bernardo and Homoka, right aren't going to want to be the he or she, the charger. But if Carla Homoka was serious about this, and my sense is she'll continue to be quiet, so I think she won't do anything, but she could walk into a courthouse where she lives, speak to a justice of the peace, and have a privately laid charge, which a lot of people in Canada don't realize you can do if the police turn you away, but you have a bona fide complaint a justice of the peace could lay a charge. I don't think it would happen, but I can tell you, Scott, going back to my main point, if it wasn't Carla Hamoka, but a relatively popular person or social justice warrior, to use that term, and they went in and said, there's this Facebook group that's following me into the bathroom, into the doctor's office, I have kids, you can rest assured there'd be a charge laid. Um, you don't think she will, uh, and obviously we're just guessing at this point, you don't think she will move forward with this. Why stay here, decide to raise your kids here, and not defend yourself? Why be quiet about this? Well, uh, you know... Why not slip away or or make a stink about it? Okay, so let's slip away. I think she tried to slip away to the Caribbean for a while, came back, and had three kids that she wanted to raise here. So I'm not so sure there's that many places when they know her background that would say, welcome, Carla or Miss Teal, please slip away with us. Uh-huh. To me, though, one of the things, and this is a big problem in what I call our anti-social media age, is that if she does anything, she takes a story that's sort of still in the margins, still not at the top of everybody's lips, dealing with a bunch of people on Facebook who may have, and I mean no disrespect, a lot of time on their hands, and she may blow it up into a much bigger story, So she, who has disappeared into the weeds to the best of her ability, and maybe she belongs in the weeds, let's put it this way, she was no innocent person back in the 90s Mm -hmm. with Bernardo, but there is a clever way to try and make a story die down by not inflaming it or throwing gas on the fire, and I have a sense that she's a person who will continue to sort of swallow this besetting in the doctor's office because she doesn't exactly occupy the moral high ground. Um, 
Could she go some other place other than Canada? I mean, isn't that sort of uh, rubbing people's faces in all of this? I'm surprised she even came back here. Well, the rubbing the people's faces in it. Let's let's like even if you're in the even if you're in the Caribbean, you're not getting this stuff. Well, she actually did remember. There was a very clever reporter. I remember that. Yep. Yeah, so you would know that, and that's how the story came with all these paparazzi, like TMZ photos mm-hmm. of her living her life quietly. So this is 2017. If somebody wants to find her, Scott, you know, we live in a world where you can find that needle in the haystack. But I'm not so sure, and again, this is a philosophical argument. She's done her time. She served her maximum sentence. Again, She's unpopular. I'm a person who believes that, for example, and I mean this as a literal analogy, I'm a person that believes that there's a person who's convicted of a terrorism offense in Canada who's a dual citizen, they should be booted out of the country. Our parliament disagrees with me and says the welcome mat is there. You take that to somebody as unpopular as Carla Hamoka, who has committed one of the most horrendous crimes on the planet, but she's served her time. This idea that because she's the boogeyman or boogeywoman or public enemy number two, Bernardo being number one, she should be banished. I don't love that idea. And third, again, different countries' immigration policies is a different conversation for you and I on a different day. I'm not so sure there's that many places on the planet hmm. that would open the welcome mat from yeah. her, unless she, of course, met a man there, because I think that was the history in the Caribbean. Could she just head off to the States, or would she not be allowed there? I don't think she'd be allowed there for a series of reasons. The easiest one is because she's been convicted of an extraordinarily serious crime of what's called moral turpitude. So I'd be surprised, quite frankly, Scott, if she was even able to get over the border Hmm. to go to Florida and, you know, help out in the hurricane relief efforts. Right. Uh, The fact that she is back in Canada, the fact that she did was a part of this horrific crime, uh, will a prosecutor or, or law official say, well, you got to expect that reaction, not much we can do? I think so. I think there's a part of it where I think even she didn't really have a beef where she's volunteering at the school and the parents hear about it. They get it all a Twitter, pun intended, and they say, you know, we don't want her there. I think she takes that because I think she's wise enough. You, no, nobody listening to this should assume she's anything other than a very clever woman. I can assure you of that. Yeah. But when it comes to sitting in the doctor's office and going about your daily private things, particularly when you're a mother of three kids, and I'll say this, Scott, and I don't care who disagrees with it, to revisit the sins of her onto the three children she's yeah. brought into this world who are innocent, yeah. who've had no connection to this, I'll debate that till the end of the day that those kids should not have to be subjected to what her mother may be subjected to, even if you were to say back to me, Scott, which is valid, well, what about the kids that Kristen French and Mahaffey never were able to have or the parents that lost their two daughters? I get that. Plus, there's lots out there, Ari, that would think she shouldn't even be able to keep her kids. Uh, That's a fair point, but until somebody comes back and tells me that evil people or convicted convicts or people that have committed crimes, we've created some new law in Justin Trudeau's interesting parliament, that they're not allowed to procreate, I'm at the point where they are, and if she's a good mother, as bizarre as that may sound, Scott, I'm not lost on the bizarreness of that. I just don't like the idea that three kids' lives are going to be ruined because we all hate Carla Hamoka and think that she, quite frankly, literally 
got away with murder. All right. So, Ari, what about these people that have actually posted on this? Uh, Advice for them, and have they opened themselves up to litigation? Well, they have opened themselves to litigation. Do I think she's going to retain a lawyer and go down this road and begin being in the news for the next two, three years since she really does want to protect her children from a lot of attention? I think these people are probably safe. But if I was advising them, I would say, you know, you might want to tread carefully here because you're sort of making her case out for her. Leave aside the criminal aspect. Criminal charges are harder to prove than civil matters. It's a reasonable doubt standard versus balance of probabilities. All that means in English is balance of probabilities is greater than 50%, not a hard standard to get over. But, you know, these are people that, quite frankly, Scott, they're not going to care what a lawyer says. They believe that they're doing the right thing. They have a zeal mm. and a mission to it. And, I, and quite frankly, I don't have any problem with it when it comes to her not being in schools or teaching or volunteering or being around little kids. But when it comes to sitting or shopping in Loblaws or Sobeys or Metro and sitting in a doctor's office or going to church and there's a camera in her face, you know, I would say to these people, who's the bigger problem, you or her? Yeah, it's a good point, valid point. What about Facebook? Do they hold any responsibility here? I don't think so. And one of the things that I've been tired of, and I discuss this a lot on other subjects, is that everybody wants to blame Twitter or Facebook or all these other sites for what some of the trolls and people in their mother's basement do on it. So I Mm. think at the end of the day, this would not so precisely or blatantly contravene Facebook's term of use. They're not sort of saying the vicious, over-the-top, threatening things that would make Twitter or Facebook take down. So I don't think this is a Mark Zuckerberg problem. I think this is more of a societal problem. So what options does Homoka have? Either put up with it or let it sue? I think, I and, think and would I she have to go through those posts and decide which ones are malicious and which ones are, are worth suing? Well, okay, interestingly, Scott, to go into the weeds here, you don't have to show in the criminal code a maliciousness. You only have to show a, a, a few different options. For example, besetting, repeatedly being watched or followed, repeatedly being intimidated. If you're sitting in a doctor's office and somebody is taking a picture of you and knowing it's going on Facebook, It is to intimidate you. Now, they would say it's to educate the public or because we provide a very valuable paparazzi service. But she and what she's going through, if this is all accurate, meets certain tests in the criminal code. So her options are as follows. Call the cops. Make an incident report. Depends on who you're going to get at the police station. But they have to follow the criminal code no differently than, as I said at the beginning of the segment, Scott, if she were popular. Police turn her away. She can go to a courthouse and lay a private charge. If that doesn't work, she can retain a lawyer who deals with Internet defaming slander libel. We know about that with Kathleen Wynne and Patrick Brown in the last day or two. Not hard to do, but I don't think that she'd probably go down that road, least of all because of the expense, but because she knew that she would go from a story that maybe one or two days in passing to a story that would have a one-year shelf life as it moved through the court. So I expect her to continue to sit on her hands. The unfortunate result of that is that these people's fire will probably only grow to the point where somebody with a cell phone will get right in her face, confront her as if they're judge, jury, and executioner, and something of a more physical nature 
could result. You have to think, though, Ari, too, that if she's having these sorts of issues there living in Quebec, she must be having problem getting services. I mean, if people, if she wants work done around her house, she wants this, that, or the other, and people are finding out who she is, um, does she have any recourse there? I mean, can people I, say, I, hey, you know what, I don't want to cut your lawn? I don't think so. It sort of ties into that debate about the, the, the baker who won't serve uh, a cake to the gay couple because of some religious belief. Right. I don't think somebody who doesn't want to cut her lawn because they don't like the idea of cutting the lawn of somebody who participated in the vicious rape, murder, and I won't even you know get into the worst details than mm. those with a person. I, I think as much as we don't have the rights in Canada or the U.S. to say no to a lot of things without getting into trouble, I think you're pretty safe not offering your services to somebody like her. Uh, you brought up Patrick Brown and Kathleen Wynne. Did he slander her? Is there going to be an apology here? Will that go any further, do you think? One million percent did he slander her. The plain meaning of his words was slanderous. He knows it, I think, with all due respect to whoever the fantastic lawyer who told him to double down <laughs> yesterday and say, I thought he received very poor legal advice. Kathleen went today, uh, just as we are speaking now, gave a very clever option to him to give him to October 24th. And I think what she was saying is, dude, you better get a much better batch of legal advice because he's, you see, it's one thing, Scott, to say something in closed doors that somebody who overheard something says this is what was said. He said this with 12 of the biggest media outlets in Canada saying she is on trial in Sudbury. That is defamatory. It is it is demonstrably, provably wrong. Remember, the truth is always, you know, a defense to this. And I just think, and I don't want to use a vulgar term in the 12 o'clock hour, it's sort of like, you know, I don't want to say it, where it's sort of like male machismo. Right. With proper deep breath. He could have very easily said, I misspoke when I said she's standing trial. I meant she's testifying in a trial that has some concerns. He shouldn't have said it. And to listeners who say, ah, it's just politics, it's just politics, that's one of the problems. That if it's just politics and he gets to say something like that, when everybody else, by the way, even the NDP, who are no fans of Wynn, even their leader came out and said, you know, we disagree with Wynne about everything. We think the sun rises in the west. She thinks it rises in the east. But what Patrick Brown said was wrong and beneath him. And I, I, I don't like when people say that's politics as usual. He lied. And if he made a mistake, he could have come out today and looked like a statesman, Scott. He would have looked like a statesman. Yeah, now by uh, uh, trying to brush it under the rug, he's probably drawing more attention to himself and will have to end up being more than what he wanted it to be. And made himself look, to me, not like a leader. So how little does he have to do in order to appease her? How does he he get himself out of this one? A two-sentence. A two-sentence press release, and, you know, they have a built-in press release fax machine there, not hard to do, that says, when I said she was standing trial, I misspoke, I meant she was testifying in a trial, I don't want anybody to take my words as that she was on trial, she was not, I wish you all a happy September, may the weather stay nice. (laughs) Ari Goldkind has been with us, Toronto defense lawyer, talking about politics, and of course, uh, Carla Homolka resurfacing yet again in Quebec, this time uh, under the watchful eyes of a Facebook group. Ari, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
Benoit Artie-Chartron is with us, Senior Research Associate Global Security and Politics with CIGI. Reason being, North Korea has launched another missile uh, over a Japanese island and a second flyover for Japan in less than a month. Uh, but what's really uh, uh, startling and, I guess, uh, concerning, a current U.S. policy directs the American military not to defend Canada uh, if targeted. And Benoit is with us now. Benoit, thank you for taking the time to join us. Do you think can- uh, Canadians are surprised at this information? Um, I, To be honest, I think so. Um, I think this was not to be uh, expected, considering that under NORAD, uh, this would have covered, covered theoretically uh, Canada as well. And, you know, the United States and Canada have always had a very strong relationship. Uh, the missile defense system uh, in, um, in all over the territory of North America would have uh, theoretically um, defended Canada. So certainly uh, this news comes to surprise and will not be to the liking of our defense officials here in Canada. So uh, is this political? Does this, you know, does this go back to being involved in in U.S. ballistic missile uh, defense shields and and Canada not participating? Is this more about who has say at the table as opposed to who's being defended? Well, you know what? I I think you're right. I was thinking about this, and this is uh, exactly what what is probably the reason behind this decision. There has been, as we know, some you know wrangling behind the scenes here in Canada as to whether or not we should participate in in this uh, missile defense system uh, in North America. Uh, We know the Liberal government is is considering that, and I would think, uh, considering the current political situation and uh, the sensibility sensitivity of this uh, of this issue, if Canada were to participate in ballistic missile defense, and if there were a bigger commitment from Canada, uh, the response from the United States probably would have been different. Are we investigating this, Benoit? Because uh, from what I'm reading, the Prime Minister's office says uh, this is not going to change, their, their position is not going to change anytime soon. Well, it's not going to change anytime soon, but I'm sure, however, that uh, the announcement that we are talking about from the Americans is going to spur further discussion here in Canada. Uh, because it probably came to surprise to our to the prime minister and our, and our defense officials, it will undoubtedly lead them to consider uh, even further uh, joining the uh, the American missile defense system. It will spur a debate within the administration, uh, within our government as well as within the population and other defense experts. And I expect that this will probably. Um, encourage us to take a stronger stance on missile defense here in Canada, because as we know, uh, the North Korean threat is ramping up. Uh, there, They don't seem deterred by any of the pressure, uh, the sanctions and the international community's uh, demonstration of force against North Korea. So given the current context, um, I think this will spur some changes here in Canada. Uh, obviously, in the past, uh, they've said that uh, the Prime Minister's office has said that we're trying to continue uh, relations and, and work that way as opposed to the way uh, the U.S. is positioning themselves on this. Can we continue to do that considering, as you mentioned, the current climate? Can we take a different position than the United States and still expect to be protected by them? No, and I think that's a real issue here. Um, United States and Canada have always had a, a very strong relationship. As we know, the uh, United States is our first uh, commercial trade partner. And uh, on such a delicate issue as missile defense, uh, defense of our common territory of North America, it is something that is uh, it's a lot harder, I think, for us to take a, a different stance. And as I mentioned, considering the current international climate, not only with North Korea, but given other 
defense um, defense concerns at the moment. You know, we're talking about the uh, heightened rivalry between the United States and China, for example. There are various other uh, parts of the globe where uh, where security concerns are wrapping up at the moment. I think um, you're right. I mean, it's, it's not exactly something on which we want to have a different uh, a different stance from the Americans. Certainly, having our independent uh, foreign uh, policy and defense policy is something that we we adhere to and something that we embrace. But on certain on certain specific issues such as this, in the current context, I don't think it's a good thing. Uh, at the end, Benoit, is it not just doing our share? How will Canadians react to this, do you think? Will they press the Prime Minister to do something? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure how uh, attuned to uh, such to this issue Canadians are. I would say that mo- for the most part, uh, Canadians are becoming increasingly concerned about uh, specifically the North Korean threat. This is something as part of my work that I'm being increasingly asked about. Uh, Canadians are, 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 becoming, are becoming, I think, more concerned, and not only from the media, but the general public. I'm, I'm getting more engaged on this from the Canadian public. So, uh, yes, to answer your question, I would think that this is something that will uh, make uh, Canadians probably ask for a little more transparency from the federal government and perhaps change our stance on this issue. Uh, was backing out of this uh, defense system back in 2005 short-sighted? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And for all the reasons I mentioned, I think back in 2005, there might there might have been a little more uh, comfort back then, maybe even some complacency. Uh, the security, international security situation, although there were wars, obviously, at that time in Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't think uh, there was much of a, of a future-oriented policy looking at all the possibilities and looking at all the, the possible threats that would emerge. And certainly in 2005, the North Korean threat was not uh, what it is today. Their capabilities have advanced uh, very rapidly in the last few years. Uh, and therefore, certainly considering the context and how it, how it has evolved and considering the importance of our relationship with the United States, uh, I think it was short-sighted. How does the, getting on specifically to the North Korean situation, how does the world get a handle on this? Uh, You know, in the past, it seems the technique was to ignore him, don't acknowledge him. Uh, That certainly hasn't, that certainly hasn't stopped him from uh, continuing with his his nuclear program. At what point do, uh, does the rest of the world have to start paying attention and invite this guy to the table and, uh, you know, bite the lip and do what you have to do to keep, uh, you know, World War III from happening? Right, right. And that's a good question. Uh, negotiations is probably ultimately the only way uh, that, that we will resolve the situation. It will be a diplomatic resolution, because if we look at the other options out there, none of, none of them are very palatable. A lot of people in the last few months have uh, talked about the possibility of uh, preemptive strikes on North Korea. Uh, this would be an extremely dangerous prospect. And North Korea has uh, quite capable military, and even before we were, or when I say we, I'm talking about the Americans and the Japanese, for example, but mostly the Americans, even before we were able to overwhelm North Korea's military, they would be able to inflict extremely uh, high damages on South Korea, on Japan, where not only the United States, but Canada has interests as well. Therefore, we have to discount the, uh, military, the military option. Uh, there's the sanctions, of course. The sanctions um, have been ramping up. The problem is, as we can see, uh, they have very little effect on North Korea. They have been very good at circumventing these sanctions. So, yes, ultimately, we have to sort of, uh, you know, hold our pinch our noses and go back to the negotiation table. The only problem here right now is 
the context is absolutely not conducive to going back to the table, a negotiation table. Just look at South Korea. They've just elected a president who came to power promising more dialogue. He's a progressive, a left-leaning president who promised to mend the fences with the North. And even him came out this morning saying that right now is absolutely not the time to talk to North Korea. So when we have somebody like this who says that now is not the time to talk, it really shows you how sensitive, how dangerous this situation is. So right now it's about managing the tensions, um, putting pressure, keeping the pressure on North Korea, maybe some demonstrations of force. But obviously, like I mentioned earlier, it will have to be resolved somehow through diplomatic means. How concerned are you that the rhetoric is ramping up, uh, especially when you have a Donald Trump in the White House, uh, which probably plays right into the hands of North Korea? Uh, how concerned are you that the rhetoric gets out of hand? Well, you're, you couldn't be more right with what you just said. You know, obviously, this whole situation... Uh, uh, the, the, the culprit here is is, uh, is Kim Jong-un and his regime in North Korea. But there is absolutely no doubt that the change uh, in tone that we have heard from the White House ever since uh, Trump came to power uh, undoubtedly plays into the hands of the North Korean regime. Uh, the sort of rhetoric we've heard from Trump is, you know, at times, especially when you talk about fire and fury, was uh, strangely not very different from what we're used to hearing coming from the North Koreans. And this sort of discourse, uh, of course, plays into the hands of the North because it justifies uh, their narrative that the United States are essentially hostile to their existence, that they're looking to regime change, uh, then that they ultimately want to you know, strike and destroy North Korea. So that sort of uh, rhetoric is used by the North Korean regime to justify further uh, missile tests, further nuclear uh, tests as well, as we have seen in the last few weeks, a few months. And so therefore, this sort of rhetoric certainly is not helpful. What we need on the side of the Americans and the rest of uh, the permanent five at the Security Council is a unified and coherent response and not go down the same path as Pyongyang is doing. Uh, the Prime Minister says uh, Canada has good relations with North Korea and is not, not a target. Is that accurate, uh, especially in, in the current climate? And how confident are we with North Korean technology as far as stray missiles go, especially if they're flying over our heads? Right, right, right. Uh, well, I think uh, there is some concern, but the reality is Canada, indeed, is not a, is not a target for North Korea. And if we're talking about uh, North Korean technology, as much as there are risks related to any sort of missile launches, missile strikes, um, I think North Korean technology, as we have seen in the last few years, has become more and more reliable. Uh, the last few tests, unlike what we saw in 2016 uh, and 15, I don't know if that makes me. Tests. I don't know if that makes me feel any more comfortable, Benoit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I completely, I completely agree with you. Uh, I completely agree. But the reality is. Uh, the last, they've gotten better with, uh, with their technology. And again, this doesn't mean that we have to be complacent about that. There are things uh, that we uh, can do here in Canada that the government can do. And among others, we talked about it, the missile defense system earlier, which is something we could, we should probably adhere to. Adhere to. But uh, other than that, Canada has little to say uh, on the situation. Recently, Canada sent uh, a national security advisor to Pyongyang to secure the release of the pastor from Toronto, Pastor Lim. So we have certain um, channels that are open with North Korea with which we may have to, we could be able to, you know, try to talk to North Korea, mediate or in some sort of way. 
But the reality is Canada remains a very small player uh, with little influence on the situation, unfortunately. So what happens here in your mind, Benoit? I mean, does does Kim Jong-un just keep lobbing missiles at people, buzzing them by their head until eventually one gets too close, and then all of a sudden they go, all right, all right, all right, let's come get this guy to the table and settle this. I mean, is that is that where this is going? Well, unfortunately, uh, yes, because let's look at it very coldly. The last few months, um, the provocations have become more harsh. They have become more frequent as well. And when, if you look at it from an outside perspective, they have had to deal with very little consequence, very little uh, retaliation from the international community. There has been no, um, other than sanctions, really, uh, and condemnation, of course, you know, rhetorically from the United Nations, from other parties, there's been very little consequence. Of course, the sanctions are becoming harsher and harsher, especially uh, the resolution 2371 and the latest one from last week, 2375. But the North Koreans, as I mentioned earlier, are extremely good at evading sanctions, at circumventing them. Uh, and therefore, unless we try to find another route, they won't be deterred. Uh, because, like I said, uh, they're sort of winning right now. Whatever they do, they're doing at they're doing that with little response uh, or little consequence from the international community. So, so what can the point, so what what can the international community do to rattle their cage other than sanctions, which don't seem to be working? Okay. Well, the one thing, um, the one when we're if we're talking about sanctions, the one thing we could try to do, and the Americans have started going down that route, is since direct sanctions on North Korea have had little effect. They're now going for secondary sanctions, meaning hitting uh, Chinese companies, for example, that still deal with North Korea, hoping to have an effect on this. But other than that, what can the international community do? What I think uh, they should do is when uh, once the sort of cycle of, of tension uh, goes down, which it will um, inevitably do at some point in the future, you have to go back to the negotiation table and go with go in there with very um, modest objectives. We can't go in there expecting denuclearizations. The North Koreans will not uh, do away with their nukes. What we got to go at the negotiation table with is a mindset that we've got to achieve some very mild steps, such as, you know, a freeze on either side, a freeze, for example, on North Korean tests, and perhaps uh, the Americans could ram down their uh, military exercises on the in South Korea that they've been doing a couple times a year. The sort of thing that, that could slowly but surely, uh, you know, slow down or reduce the tension. Other than that, it's really hard to see anything else that would uh, have an effect. Uh, there would be, of course, preemptive strikes, like, like I mentioned, on launch sites in North Korea, but these are very risky for the risk of uh, North Korean retaliation. Uh, there's been chatter of late about removing Kim Jong-un. Is that an option? Um, I don't think it is. And the reason for that is uh, there's very little intelligence uh, on North Korea, on the, uh, and the internal workings of the regime. Unlike other countries, uh, North Korea is extremely opaque. It's, an, it's a very hard regime to penetrate. So for that, in order to take down Kim Jong-un, you need to have... Uh, good intelligence on 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 the regime, and we simply, as Americans, simply do not have that. North Korea has often been likened to a black hole of intelligence, and for very good reasons. Another way to do that would be to, you know, try to strike his palace, for example, right, uh, with 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 uh, with strikes. But that would be again very risky, and because we do not know where uh, Kim Jong Un is at all times, because he seems to be very elusive. Uh, there's no real easy way to uh, to try to take him out. Unlike other past dictators that had more 
um, more contact with the rest of the world. Think about uh, Fidel Castro, Mao, or Stalin. These were all leaders that often, or not necessarily often, but occasionally went, went out of these third countries and met other leaders and were exposed to the rest of the world and other non-nationals, which would have made it easier back then to take out those le- these leaders. Kim Jong-un is very reclusive, doesn't go out of North Korea, and these are all elements that make uh, the prospect of eliminating eliminating him uh, very hard to accomplish. Who will end up being a peacemaker here, or or maybe even aggressor? And you know, uh, tragically, that could be an option, I guess. Who who will play that role here? Will it be China? Will it be Russia? Will it be the U.S.? Who, who's yeah. who's going to take well, the lead role here? Well, you see. Um, in the last, well, ever since the early 2000s, China has been trying to play the mediating role. There was, uh, between 2003 and 2009 on the peninsula, there was uh, these six-party talks that aimed to denuclearize uh, North Korea. And really, China was the convener there. They were the ones who brought all the parties together. Because China is so concerned about instability at its borders, uh, it is the, the one who keeps calling everyone back to the negotiation table. So if, which if, kind if, of seems odd when you, which kind of seems odd when you think about it, Benoit, considering, considering historic times, it seems odd they're playing peacemaker here. No, you're right, you're right. But again, it's not because China has these necessarily uh, lofty ideals there on the peninsula. It's very much a, a self-interested uh, strategic calculus. Because think about it, North Korea has a long border with China. A lot of their trade goes through China. And if there was any sort of instability within North Korea, if the regime was collapsing, uh, it would be extremely negative. Uh, there would be extremely negative effect on China. There would be millions of refugees going into China that would uh, really destabilize some of its provinces, which is something that, uh, that China doesn't want. And also, it could lead to a reunified Korea that would be allied to the United States. And that's the last thing that China wants, considering current a geopolitical mm. rivalry between Washington and Beijing. So for these reasons, for these very self-interested reasons, China is trying, to no avail right now, but trying to bring everybody uh, back to the negotiation table, playing a mediating role. And I think we can expect China to continue to be, uh, or to attempt to be a leader uh, in this in this uh, conflict. Benoit Artie Chartrand has been with us, Senior Research Associate, Global Security and Politics with CIGI. Benoit, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Ontario College faculty union members have voted in favor of a strike mandate amid contract talks. 68% of the represented uh, members endorsed the ability to call a strike. It doesn't necessarily mean one. It's all part of the process. Uh, But we'll get an update to see how things are going. Let's bring in Jay Robb, Director of Communications, Mohawk College, and he is with us now. Hello, Jay. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. I think I should have called you from outside if it's 28. I know, really. Like, honestly, isn't there a nice uh, amphitheater, a nice little corridor somewhere, a square you can go out to and just kind of enjoy yourself there? I've heard there's patios with beer here. (laughs) Yeah, I I have heard that myself. All right. uh, Should students be concerned about this? Where are we with this? Yeah, so uh, I would tell students not to be concerned. Um, We're a long ways away from the potential of a strike. Uh, we're telling students it's business as usual. So classes are on, labs are on, they're still turning in assignments and exams. Maybe some aren't so thrilled about that part of it. Um, so soon, but, really? Uh, I mean, come on, Jay. I mean, it's only this. Oh, we put them to work. Uh, there you go. Get them going right off the top. We don't, we don't mess around. That's good. Um, yeah. So uh, the, uh, the union 
we'll go back to the bargaining table. I think it's Monday, and they now have a strike mandate, and the team uh, that's representing the 24 colleges will continue to bargain. Uh, so what does happen if, by chance, there, we, we do get to this point? Uh, are, are there plans in place? How, how do you guys continue uh, business as usual? Yeah, so we're pretty hopeful that uh, a contract will be negotiated before the end of the month. That's when the existing contract is done. Uh, the colleges have put a pretty good offer on the table already. Uh, but if the worst happens, uh, we'll have contingency plans in place. Uh, students will get to finish what they start. No one's going to lose their year. Uh, that's uh, never happened in the 50 years the college system mm-hmm. due to a strike. Uh, is there a timeline here? You talked about the end of the month. Uh, is there a time when, and again, we all know that this is part of the process. This has to be done in order, uh, you know, sometimes to, to get things to move along. Is there a timeline? Is there a, is there a, a point where this does start to get serious? Uh, well, yeah, as I said, contract ends the end of the month, and then past that point, I mean, if it's up to the union to decide whether faculty go on strike. I mean, the ball's very much in their court at that point. Um, they'll be the ones that decide whether to pull the profs out of the classroom and put them on the picket line. Uh, so, uh, from a college perspective, what can you say about this process? What can you say about demands? Uh, sorry, the offer that's been put to faculty? Yeah, what, uh, what can you say about the offer and their demands? Right. Uh, I won't speak to their demands. I mean, they can speak for themselves. Uh, for the college's offer, it's a 7.5% increase over four years in their salary. Uh, the maximum salary would go up to just over 115000 a year. Uh, looking at a lump sum payment and then uh, benefit enhancements, no concessions. Uh, 68% have voted uh, for this. Uh, is there anything you can determine by that number, um, whether it would be higher or lower or, or, or where that sits? Does that tell you how serious this is or give you in any indication? Yeah. We're, right now we're more focused on just reassuring our students uh, that it is business as usual. Stay focused on your studies. Um, we encouraged all of our faculty to get out and vote on Thursday. Uh, we didn't tell them how to vote. Um, but we wanted everyone to sort of exercise their right. I mean, this is a process. I can understand if you're a student, this can be a frustrating, sort of confusing process to go through if you haven't been through it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're optimistic that at the end of the day, we'll have a fair settlement and it'll just continue to be business as usual at Mohawk. Is any of this uh, bleeding over into the school? Is there anything different at the school? Is there any work to rule? Is there any, uh, is this is uh, is this being talked about a lot uh, around campus? Uh, or is it pretty much like you said, classes are going on the way they are and, and, and nothing's being, nothing is any different at this point? Yeah, it's still early days. I think some of our students are still trying to figure out their way around the campus. That's um, a good point. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they're, the still, they're still 20, they're still trying to find that patio. Yes, and it's also twenty eight degrees out. Um, yeah, good point. There's that. Uh, like I said, though, I mean, it, it's the union's call whether faculty go on strike and work to rule. That's that's their call. Uh, but we're hopeful that uh, we'll have a settlement by the end of the month. Now, uh, do you talk to other colleges when it comes to this sort of thing? Uh, is there preparation? Is there things that you can uh, you can do by working together? Well, the colleges are bargaining as a, as a group. So the bargaining team representing the colleges, that's all 24 of our colleges are at the table. 
uh, we have representatives at the table negotiating with the faculty union. All right, Jay Robb has been with us, Director of Communications, Mohawk College. Uh, Ontario College faculty union members have voted in favor of a strike, uh, 68%. However, the talks are ongoing. Jay Robb says business as usual at Mohawk College. Jay, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Get outside. All right, I will, and you too. Good luck finding that patio, and uh, make it your mission to direct students to it as quickly as you can. Let's bring in uh, Nicole Zwires, Vice Chair, CATA Academic Bargaining Team, and is with us now. Hello, Nicole. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Hi, thank you. So uh, is is there a good chance that we could see a strike here? Uh, Is this just part of the process? What can you tell us, Nicole? Uh, this really is just part of the process. With the 68% that you just mentioned, that is a strong indication from our membership that they want us to reach uh, a settlement. Uh, we're not aiming for a strike, but our members have told us that uh, we have their mandate. And so um, our aim still as the bargaining team is to get back to the bargaining table and to negotiate a fair, reasonable settlement that we believe is going to be the best for students as well as faculty. Uh, what, uh, what are the demands? What is there that, or what isn't there that should be there? Well, right now, I, you may have heard this, there's a, a staggering statistic that was just released to us by the uh, College Council. That's the body that is negotiating for the 24 colleges. Um, 81% of all courses are being taught by contract faculty. That's precarious workers. Only 19% are being taught by full-time faculty. I'm a full-time faculty member, so I feel as though I'm, I'm a bit of a dying breed. And with those Nicole, numbers, give, Nicole, give us those numbers one more time, please. 81% of all teaching at the college level is being taught by contract faculty. Hmm. Only 19% of all teaching is being done by full-time faculty. That would probably be like department heads, wouldn't it? Uh, Full-time faculty are are people like myself. We're professors who are in the classroom. We're the ones who are providing the consistency, the stability. We're providing reference letters. We're meeting our students outside of class. And unfortunately, although our contract faculty are very qualified, very esteemed uh, members of the profession, they uh, have no job security. They're applying for new jobs within the college every four months. Uh, They're paid very poorly, and oftentimes they're juggling a number of different jobs or different teaching colleges, uh, contracts at different colleges, just in order to make ends meet. So they're not available to our students. Are they people, though, that are professionals and perhaps still working in the profession and just doing the teaching on the side, like and, and like you mentioned, have several of this sort of things going on? That's a very small percentage. So certainly the college system has always operated on um, the fact of some members of industry coming in Mm -hmm. and teaching, but that's very, very small. And with only 19% full-time faculty, most of the 81% are wanting the full-time job. Um, Also keep in mind that many of our full-time professors have very close ties with industry. We are constantly in contact with our industries that we come from, so we keep up to date and we're very knowledgeable in those industries. Uh, Has this figure always been this high? Has it always been 19% full-time and 81% uh, contract? No, and I'm very glad you asked that question, and that's why we're really saying this is a college system in crisis uh, at the 50th anniversary. Um, in fact, just uh, three years ago, at 2014, the numbers were 70% contract faculty and 30% full-time faculty. And unfortunately, what's happened over the past three years of our collective agreement is that a concession from the last uh, negotiating round, uh, which is one that the College Council wants to keep going for four more years as part of their offer, has resulted in this further decline from 30% full-time to only 19%. Uh, This obviously all comes down to money, does it not? 
It really doesn't. Uh, wages have not been front and centre at all. And what we're talking about is there's a Bill 148, which is being put forward uh, in the legislature, and that is equal pay for equal work. It's about fairness. So the government is even recognising that there really needs to be uh, some redress for uh, many different organisations, including colleges, that are not treating precarious workers fairly. So our issues have not been front and foremost about money. In fact, many of the things we've put forward like having input into academic decision-making, are relatively cost-neutral. But I'm guessing uh, the reason it's gone from 70% uh, temporary to 81% in the, in the span of a couple of years is because of cost-effectiveness, no? Well, what's interesting about that is that when you have such a large, unwieldy contract faculty that you're constantly interviewing uh, for new teaching positions, you need a lot of managers in order to manage that. So what we've seen is a tremendous increase in the number of administrators hired uh, in order to manage that workforce. Uh, Full-time workforce is relatively easy to manage. We're stable, we're consistent. Really, there is nothing further to do with respect to a a full-time hire. Once you've hired them, you you keep them um, with their classes, etc. But with 81% contract faculty, that is uh, quite unwieldy and costs a lot of money to manage. Uh, that being said, I'm still guessing it costs less to manage than it was if they would all be full-time staff, no? Well, what we're saying is that, unfortunately, there certainly is underfunding in the college system, and mm-hmm. I think that both sides of this would absolutely agree on that principle, um, and we're seeking to to change that. So there is underfunding, there is limited dollars, but unfortunately, our position is that the limited dollars are being misdirected, and they're not being put in the classroom to the extent that they could be. There's no indication that uh, college management sees a concern with only having 19% full-time faculty, and I think that's what's really concerning our members. What reasons do they give you for only having 19% full-time faculty and 81% uh, temp? They do tell us that um, because of underfunding, this is what they're left with. Right. Um, however, when we look at the sheer dollars that are being spent on an ever-expanding uh, management sector, Uh, we're not sure that that really is accurate. In addition, most colleges are building bright new shiny buildings. Almost every college has put up within the last five years very new, very expensive, beautiful buildings uh, that are very costly. And it was reported that every single college but for one, so 23 of the 24 colleges, are operating on a surplus. Uh, As you mentioned, 50 years for Ontario colleges. Uh, How do you compare the past to the future? Uh, Obviously, this is, uh, you know, I mean, the need for for this is growing. Uh, You know, we're seeing this with the student body. What are the next five to 10 years going to be like? That really is going to depend, I think, largely on these negotiations. I think that's why this is such a critical time and why our members have given us the mandate that they have, because what happens here is going to critically drive what happens in the next five years. And I think if you speak to any faculty member at a college, they'll tell you how fantastic a college education is. We really believe it, and we really feel that the success of our students is our success. So it's something we're very closely aligned with. Uh, But I think that operating on 81% contract faculty is just not stable and it's not sustainable. It's not a long-term plan. Why is that? Well, I think what we're seeing is that the people who are 81% faculty have been hanging it out, have been toughing it out on the promise of a full-time position. But with these full-time positions getting less and less in terms of a percentage, they realize that there is actually no hope of a full-time position. So they're leaving. And so we're having an even greater turnover of contract faculty than we have in the past five years. 
Uh, can you see reversing this? I mean, going from 81 to 19 back to where it was in, in 2014? I mean, uh, that sounds like it would be a pretty <laughs> yes. costly proposal. I, I think that um, it certainly it is possible. I think it has to happen. I think our students deserve it, and I think that employers also deserve it. Um, the employers who employ our graduates are expecting the high quality that, that they've seen from the college system for the past 50 years, and they need to have it. Our economy needs to have it. So I think it's it's certainly possible if there's a will to do it. Um, again, we're certainly looking to lobby the government to get those much-needed dollars coming into the college sector. Uh, but again, we're also saying the dollars that are there need to be properly spent. And uh, that could be done to reverse, in at least in part, the, uh, the very low 19% of full-time faculty. Are university institutions having this problem, or is that a different kettle of fish? I, I think it is a bit of a different kettle of fish, to be quite honest. Um, I don't think that they're seeing anything like what we are uh, and I'm just gauging that by the shock when I say the numbers of the 8119. So I, I don't think that uh, universities are experiencing quite what we're experiencing in terms of that shocking amount of contract faculty. I'm guessing, though, colleges uh, would say, Nicole, that the reason this number is the way that it is is often, as you mentioned, colleges are known for employing people that are in the industry and, and may do this part-time. I know, I know people, I know colleagues that do it. Uh, here, uh, so again, is is that a viable is that a viable excuse? Isn't that what makes this system healthy? No, it it is in small numbers, but not in the numbers we're seeing now. So certainly, in the past, what would happen is we would always have a a relatively small percentage um, and a very important percentage of people who, as you mentioned at your work, are coming in and they're teaching a course. And, and that's a great experience for our students. But to run a whole system on people who are not there and committed on a regular basis means that you can't contribute to the development of a program the same way. You can't be offering out-of-class assistance. You can't be ensuring that there's sound pedagogy through one you know, first semester through to the last semester of a program. So it's always been noted and it's always been recognized as being critically important that we have a contingency, a viable contingency, a stable contingency of full-time professors. Do you think you can get worked into a deal, uh, something that can change these numbers and move them from 81% to, uh, to something more, uh, uh, in, your, in your words, sustainable? I think we have to. Uh, I, our members have told us that that is a very large concern that they have. Uh, again, our members are really committed to our students, and uh, we, and these we work with these, them every day. These contract workers would still be in the union, obviously, would they not? Obviously. Uh, a portion of them is. It's it's uh, it, it's interesting. We have uh, three different categories of contract workers. So one of those categories is in the union, and those are people who are called partial load. They teach more than six hours, up to 12 hours per week. Mm-hmm. Um, however, and, and part of this instability, though, is that it shifts every semester. So, for example, you could be a contract worker, and, and this semester you could be partial load. No guarantee that you would be partial load. You might be part-time, which is less than six hours or six hours or less. Uh, you could be sessional, which is uh, more than 12 hours. So you're in and out of the union. Uh, mm-hmm. It's inconsistent, and, and that's part of the instability. Uh, playing devil's advocate here, what would you say if people say this is just uh, unions trying to increase their membership? It's not about education. I, I mean, I, I understand that, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you say you're playing devil's advocate. Uh, this really, I, I, I don't think you can think of too many stable environments where it relies on an 81% precarious work 
sector. That does sound a little high, doesn't it? It, it really does. And uh, I've spoken to some of my colleagues who are professors in business. And so these are numbers people. These are people who eat, breathe, and sleep uh, business theory. Um, many of them are very well educated in business. And I, I've said to a number of them in my talks, because I want to understand more, is there any sustainable business model for these kind of numbers? And I have been absolutely assured there is not. Uh, and I think that is the case. And I, I do believe that the public hearing these numbers would be very alarmed to think that they're going into a classroom where this is the kind of lack of stability that we're dealing with. Where do you think this is going, Nicole? I really hope for a settlement. I, I do. I, I think we've worked very hard. We've been open to having negotiations where we're really talking. We're reasonable people. Um, and we're, we're open to having any kind of uh, discussions that will get us to a fair settlement. So with that kind of approach, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we will be able to negotiate something that's sound and fair, but that certainly addresses our concerns and the 19% uh, being part of those concerns. Nicole Swears has been with us, Vice Chair, CATA Academic Bargaining Team. Of course, Ontario College faculty members have voted uh, 68% in favour of a strike mandate if they have to go that far. Uh, Nicole, thank you for the time and insight. Thank Much you. appreciated. Okay, take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CH. Редактор